An architect and a businessman were having their first meeting in a new building on the top floor of a Chicago skyscraper. During the meeting, a windstorm began to cause the building to sway back and forth several inches. The motion felt like several feet to the businessman, who was CEO of the company that owned the building. The architect, who had designed the building and had managed its construction, noticed the motion, but he was calm. After a few minutes of watching the businessman go from distracted to concerned to the edge of terrified, the architect finally said to him, Listen, don't worry. This building is not going to blow down. Your company paid millions of dollars extra so we could construct a building that exceeds every code for earthquake and wind. The businessman replied, all I really know is how much it costs. You know it's not going to blow down because you designed and built this thing. Right now, my stomach doesn't know anything. And he headed for the elevator. What was the difference between these two men? The difference was this. One really knew what he needed to know to have peace, and the other did not. Knowing what we really need to know about the most important issues in life can make a world of difference. Knowing with confidence and assurance is priceless. The beloved Apostle John understood this, which is one of the reasons why he wrote his little letter called 1 John. This morning, we conclude our trek through that marvelous epistle. Please turn with me one last time to 1 John chapter 5, over near the end of the New Testament. 1 John chapter 5, and I invite you to follow along with me as I read verses 18 through 21, which will conclude our study of John's marvelous little letter. 1 John chapter 5, verse 18. We know that whoever is born of God does not sin, but he who has been born of God keeps himself, and the wicked one does not touch him. We know that we are of God, and the whole world lies under the sway of of the wicked one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us an understanding that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Amen. <clears throat> The reason why I titled this message, We Know, is because John opens verse 18, verse 19, and verse 20 with the words, We Know. We know that whoever is born of God does not sin. We know that we are of God. We know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding. Obviously, it's important to the Holy Spirit that we know. In fact, in the closing nine verses of this letter, the word know is used 
seven times. It's used once in verse 13, twice in verse 15, once in verse 18, once in verse 19, and twice in verse 20. That is seven times in nine verses. Back in verse 13, John said, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know you have eternal life. Knowing what we really need to know about the most important issues in life is priceless. Some people think it is prideful to say that we know these kinds of things with certainty. That would be true if our certainty and our assurance were based on ourselves, but that isn't the basis of our confidence. That is not how we know. We don't know that we are going to heaven because we are so good. That's not how we know. The basis of our confidence is what God has said. That is how we know, and that is why our assurance is not prideful. According to verse 13, the Holy Spirit wants us to know that we have eternal life. According to verse 15, the Holy Spirit wants us to know that the Lord hears and answers our prayers. According to verse 18, the Holy Spirit wants us to know that true believers do not live a life of habitual unbroken sin. According to verse 19, the Holy Spirit wants us to know that we belong to God and and are no longer under the control of Satan. According to verse 20, the Holy Spirit wants us to know that we truly know God and truly know Jesus Christ. Beloved, these are things the Holy Spirit wants us to know. So my prayer as we finish this letter is that we really know these things. My prayer is that we really know these monumental realities. Notice how John closes his letter. Verse 18. We know that whoever is born of God does not sin, but he who has been born of God keeps himself, and the wicked one does not sin. Touch him. This statement by John shouldn't surprise us by now. If this were the first time we encountered a statement like this, we might wonder what it means. And if this is the first time you happen to have been here for our exposition of 1 John, then you might read a statement like this and say, What in the world is that saying? I don't understand this. This doesn't make sense. However, John has already said this earlier in his letter. But he repeats it here at the end of his letter because it is so important. Back up to chapter 3, and I'll show you what I mean. Chapter 3, verse 6. Whoever abides in him does not sin. Whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. He who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Whoever has been born of God does not sin, for his seed remains in him, and he cannot sin because he has been born of God. As I mentioned when we covered this section weeks ago, verses 6 and 9 of this chapter 
seem to contradict some statements John made earlier in his letter. For example, back in chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, John says that if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And then he goes on to say that we ought to be those who confess our sins, acknowledge our sins, admit our sins. Those verses in chapter 1 are clearly, clearly saying that we sin sometimes as Christians. Yet we just read here in chapter 3 and in our text in chapter 5 that whoever is born of God does not sin and he cannot sin. How do we resolve this apparent contradiction? The key to understanding what John is saying in chapter 1 and in chapter 3 and in chapter 5 is to realize that back in chapter 1, John is describing sin as an act that every Christian yields to on occasion. But in chapters 3 and 5, John is describing sin as an ongoing, unbroken pattern of life. Listen as I quote Dr. Warren Wiersbe's comments on this subject. He says it so well, quote, To practice sin is to sin consistently and as a way of life. It does not refer to committing an occasional sin. It is clear from chapter 1, verses 8 through 10, that no Christian is sinless, but God expects a true believer to sin less, not to sin habitually. Every great personality mentioned in the Bible sinned at one time or another. Abraham lied about his wife in Genesis chapter 12. Moses lost his temper and disobeyed God in Numbers chapter 20. Peter denied the Lord three times in Matthew 26. But sin was not the settled practice of these men. It was an incident in their lives totally contrary to their normal habits, end quote. You see, there is no contradiction between what John wrote in chapter 1 and in what he writes here in chapter 3 and what he writes in our text in chapter 5. Chapter 1 is saying that we as Christians need to admit that there are times in our lives when we sin. There are occasions when we fail. It is not spiritually healthy to deny that or to pretend that is not the case. There are incidents in our lives when we don't do what we ought to do or where we do what we should not do. And we ought to confess those sins to the Lord when we fail, when we falter, when we fall. We ought to confess those instead of trying to claim that we do not sin and that we have everything all together perfectly. By contrast, chapters 3 and 5 are saying that the unbeliever lives a life of habitual sin, especially the sin of unbelief. So that's how we are to understand the apparent contradiction between chapter 1 and chapters 3 and 5. The child of God may commit sin. The child of God does commit sin. The unbeliever practices sin. Notice chapter 3, verse 6. John says, Whoever abides in him does not sin. Whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. Rightly so, the ESV and the NIV translate this verse with the emphasis on continuous sinning. Both translations use the phrase, keeps on sinning, and the NIV even adds the phrase, continues to sin. That's what John is addressing. The person who abides in Christ 
does not continue in an unbroken pattern of sin. And then John flips the coin over to say it another way. He says, no one who keeps on sinning has either seen him nor known him. In other words, if someone claims to be a Christian, but there is no check against habitual sin, the person is making a false claim. If someone claims to know the Lord, but there is no conviction of sin in his or her heart, there's no deterrent to sin in his or her life due to the Lord's presence, that person is making a false claim. Let me say it another way. It is impossible to have Christ in your life and to be completely comfortable with unbroken sin patterns. No true Christian can be completely comfortable with unbroken sin patterns. That's another contradiction. Sure, it is possible for a true Christian to sin. Sure, it is possible for a true Christian to struggle with sin. We all do. The difference is that the child of God may struggle with sin, and he or she doesn't want to sin, doesn't want to give in, but those who belong or don't belong to God really don't care that they sin. The non-Christian just accepts it as a part of his life or a part of her life. That's the contrast John is making. He says here in chapter 3, verse 8, He who sins is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. In the first part of this verse, again, the ESV and the New American Standard translations use the word practice to make it clear what is being said here. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. This is the same thing John has been saying throughout this passage, but he wants to say it in a variety of ways to make sure that we get the point. The person who goes along in habitual sin and is not convicted of sinful practices in his life demonstrates that he doesn't belong to God. He's still under the influence of, control of the devil. One of the works of the devil is to get people to rebel against God and engage in sin. That's why he is called the tempter in Matthew 4, 3 and in 1 Thessalonians 3, 5. So verse 8 tells us Jesus came to combat this activity of Satan. And that is why John can confidently say that the person who shows no conviction of sin or no sensitivity to sin or no victory over sin proves that he is still in the clutches of the devil. This is strong language from John, but he doesn't hesitate to tell it like it is. He says here in chapter 3, verse 9, Whoever has been born of God does not sin, for his seed remains in him, and he cannot sin, because he has been born of God. Once again, other translations use the word practice or continue in this verse to make it clear what John is saying. The one who has been born of God does not practice sin. The one who has been born of God does not continue in sin. This is not saying that we never sin. Please hear that. The issue being addressed is the pattern, habit, practice, characterization, and direction of our lives. The one who has been born of God does not practice sin or continue in sin. That's not the unbroken pattern of our lives. Again, let me emphasize. 
John is not suggesting that we never sin. He is saying that we have the Word of God in our minds and the Spirit of God in our hearts and the life of God in our souls and that keeps us from going on in an unbroken pattern of sin. John has said this same thing over and over again in a variety of ways to make sure we get it and he says it again in our text in chapter 5 as he closes his letter. Let's go back to that text over in chapter 5. So John repeats this axiom in the first part of verse 18. And then he adds another thought at the end of the verse. He says in verse 18, We know that whoever is born of God does not sin, but he who has been born of God keeps him, and the wicked one does not touch him. Here at the end of the verse, John states the fact that those of us who are born of God are kept or guarded by God from the wicked one. The term wicked one is clearly a reference to Satan. And we know from other passages of Scripture, as well as from experience, that Satan does tempt us, and Satan does attack us. So what does John mean here? What is John saying here? He can't be saying that God keeps Satan from tempting us because that contradicts other scripture and it contradicts our experience in life. Every one of us in this room knows, we all know, that Satan continues to tempt us. He continues to hassle us. So what is John saying? The word that John uses at the end of this verse, translated touch or harm, can be used to describe taking hold of something or someone in the sense of ownership. That's the key thought. Ownership. So John is saying that because we have been born of God, Satan cannot lay hold of us to own us. He can tempt us, and he does tempt us. He can hassle us, and he can attack us, but he cannot own us. We belong to God, and Satan can only do what God sovereignly allows him to do. The story of Job is a perfect illustration. You know the story. Satan did a lot of things to attack Job and tempt Job, but he only did what was allowed by divine concession to accomplish God's own purposes. That's what John is saying here. Those who are born of God are kept by God and guarded by God, cannot be owned by Satan. And that contrast is set forth in the next verse. Verse 19, we know that we are of God and the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. This is a contrast that John has made throughout his letter. If you have been with us in this series, then you know that John, although he was the apostle of love and a very tender man, very gracious man, he was also a very black and white man. He saw things as black and white. That comes out throughout this letter. And so throughout his letter, he has said, all people in our world are divided up into two categories. There are those who are children of God by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and there are those who are not children of God. As we saw back in chapter 3, those who are not children of God are described as children of the devil. All people are in one category or another, says John, under the inspiration of the Spirit. All people are in one family or another. Now I realize... 
that people who are not believers in the Lord Jesus Christ do not like to accept the fact that God's word describes them as children of the devil, devil, but that is the fact. That is the case. And understand, when John uses that term or that phrase, children of the devil, he is not name-calling. John would never stoop to that point. He's not using a slur. He's not using an epithet. He is simply expressing the facts as they are. People who are not children of God through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ are called children of the devil. The phrase does not imply that all non-Christians are horrible people. There are some very nice, kind unbelievers in this world. The phrase does not imply that all non-Christians are terribly immoral. It does not imply that all non-Christians are flagrantly evil. But it does indicate that if they don't know Christ, they are not in the family of God. They're not in that family. They're in another family, the family of the devil. This is the clear teaching of Scripture, even if it is not politically correct to say so in our day and age. Hear me when I say this. Every person in this room, every one of us, this statement is true of. You are either saved or lost. There's no in-between. You are either redeemed or damned. You are either a believer or an unbeliever. You are either a Christian or a non-Christian. You are either a child of God or a child of the devil. Those are the only two options. There is no middle ground. That is why Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Knowing Jesus Christ is the only way to be right with God. If someone doesn't know Jesus, trust Jesus, embrace Jesus, then that person is not a child of God. As this verse says, verse 19, he or she is under the power, the sway, the control of the devil. That is why in 2 Timothy 2.26, salvation is described as escaping the snare of the devil. The reason why the Bible uses these kinds of phrases is because those who are not children of God are children of the devil or are under the influence of the devil. That is what Scripture clearly teaches, and there are many passages that present this doctrine to us. Now, beloved, again, let me emphasize that this does not automatically mean that every non-Christian is as vile or evil or wicked as he or she could possibly be. That is not the case. But it does mean that Satan has a hold in that person's life. Now, this person may go to church regularly because Satan would just as soon send someone to hell from the church pew as he would the gutter. It doesn't matter to him. Satan has a hold in the person's life. And this person may be very moral, very uh, kind, very religious, but if the person doesn't know Jesus Christ, Satan has a hold in that person's life. That's the contrast John is making here in verse 19. Those who have been born of God, that is, born again, born of the Spirit, belong to God. And the rest of the world, says John, lies under the sway of the wicked one. 
Satan has an enormous influence in this world, and he has an enormous influence in people's lives. He has a lot more control than most people realize. In John 12, 31 and 16, 11, Jesus calls him the prince of this world. Satan rules a world that includes men and fallen angels who are separated from God and are his enemies by nature. Beloved, this world is Satan's domain, and it is the opposite of God's rule and kingdom. Remember, Satan wants to be like God. That was his fall in the first place. That's, that was the cause of his fall. Just go back and read Isaiah 14 five times. He says, I will, I will, I will, I will, I will. I will ascend to the Most High. I will, I will take this, this uh, rulership. And, and that was his fall, and now he does rule. He rules over all rebels. He is the prince of this world. In Ephesians 2, 2, he is called the prince of the power of the air. That title pictures Satan's position and activity as a dominating leader operating in a kingdom that centers in the atmosphere of the earth. Mark it well. Make no doubt about it. Satan is a ruler. He is a prince. In fact, he is called the God of this age in 2 Corinthians 4. The emphasis of that title is on a system of philosophy or a spirit of the age that expresses a creature-centered manner of life. The God of this age propagates religion that rejects the true God and sets up a counterfeit life and a substitute religion. Satan is the God of this age. That's why Galatians 1.4 says, Christ gave himself, listen, quote, to deliver us from this present evil age. That's the way salvation is described. Christ gave himself to deliver us from this present evil age. It is evil because the evil one rules it. All of these titles describe Satan as the ruler of this world. Beloved, he is the force behind so much of what goes on in our world, especially in the area of thinking patterns. We find out from the book of Daniel, he is involved in all of the political uh, issues in our world behind the scenes. He masterminds the entire system that has values and views and philosophies that are in complete opposition to God's values and God's thoughts. In Luke 11, he is called the prince of demons. In that passage, Jesus was accused of casting out demons by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. That title of Satan has a fascinating background in the Old Testament. It can be traced back to the worship of Baal. In fact, you can see that word in the title. Beelzebub is Baal. It's translated B-E-E-L in most of our English translations, but it's connected to B-A-A-L, Baal, or Baal. The title originally meant Lord of the Flies, or Lord of the Demons, and it describes Satan's position as the ruler of a demonic host involved in bringing men and women into spiritual bondage through lust and idolatry. That's the Old Testament usage of this title. So that's Satan's position, as John tells us here in verse 19. He rules this world. Now you can see why John said what he did back in chapter 2, verses 15 through 17 of his letter, when he said, Do not love the world, neither the things that are in the world. Satan is behind it. 
This world should not have your love, your affection. That should be reserved for the Father. As Jesus said when he was asked, what is the greatest commandment? Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Not this passing world. And now you can see why James said what he did in James 4.4 when he said friendship with the world is enmity with God. Whoever wants to be a friend of the world makes himself the enemy of God. Why? Why does the person who wants to be a friend of the world make himself an enemy of God? Because if you adopt the value system of the world, then you are buying into Satan's system. Verse 19 says, the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. But, as you well know, the problem is that people in this world don't understand that. They don't know that. They don't believe that. By contrast, those of us who know Christ should understand that. And so John adds verse 20. He says, and we know that the Son of God has come. And has given us an understanding that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true. In his son, Jesus Christ, this is the true God and eternal life. What a verse. I mean, how do you go about unpacking that verse? We could spend a month on that verse alone. The first thing John says is that Jesus, the son of God, has come and has given us an understanding. Think about that, beloved. Think about what that verse is asserting. We understand things that people in this world do not understand. We understand that this world is under the influence of the devil. We understand that the only way to be delivered from him is to come to know God personally and to know Jesus Christ as our own Lord and Savior. We don't know these things on our own. We would not know them on our own. We can know them and we do know them because the Lord Jesus has made these things known to us. That's what John is saying. The Son of God has given us an understanding. This is why the Bible often uses the analogy of blindness and sight, darkness and light. We are naturally blind in darkness, but we are given spiritual sight because, as the verse says, the Son of God has given us an understanding. Through faith in Christ, we have come to know the Father. In John 17, 3, Jesus prayed to the Father and he said, And this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. That is the great New Testament definition of salvation, and it comes from the, the lips of Jesus himself. This is life eternal, that they may know you and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. As we've seen many times in our studies, the word know, K-N-O-W, in the New Testament means far more than just intellectual knowledge. It means far more than just mental assent. It's the same expression used to describe the sexual intimacy of a husband and wife. It is used that way in Luke 1.34. It is used that way in Matthew 1.24 and 25. In both of those passages, the word know, K-N-O-W, is used to refer to intimacy. And that's the way the word is used here in verse 20. To know God and to know Jesus Christ is not merely having intellectual knowledge of them. And it doesn't mean that we know about them. 
In James 2.19 it says even the demons have that kind of faith. Even the demons have that kind of knowledge. No, to know God and to know Jesus means to have an intimate, personal, ongoing, dynamic relationship with them. This is described throughout the New Testament as being in Christ or in Him, as John says right near the end of verse 20. He says, and we are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. That's another way of describing our union with the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't don't only believe in Him. We don't only follow Him. We don't only love Him. We are joined to Him in an unbreakable union. And John tells us here in verse 20 that by virtue of that relationship... By virtue of that union, we have eternal life. That's why the last phrase of this verse says, This is the true God and eternal life. I want you to notice what John does here. This is is really a fascinating statement by John. He mentions the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at that, right near the end of verse 20. He mentions the Lord Jesus Christ. And his very next phrase is, This is the true God. That is a clear, unmistakable affirmation of the deity of Christ. He is the true God, and our relationship with Him grants us eternal life. He is the true God, and our union with Him grants us eternal life. Think of it this way. If you are joined to the true eternal God in an unbreakable union, then you have eternal life. The true God is eternal. The Son is eternal. And therefore, all those who are joined to the Father, joined to the Son, have eternal life. And because we have a relationship with the true God, the true God... We need to make sure that we don't let anything become a substitute for him and embrace a false God. So John closes his letter with a final exhortation. It's really a unique way to close the letter. Verse 21, little children, keep yourselves from idols. At first, this might seem like a strange way to end the letter. But when you take the exhortation in its context, it makes perfect sense. I mean, think about it. What have we just been seeing in verses 18, 19, and especially 20? John has been talking about the true God and our relationship with the true God. But John, as a pastor, was well aware of the fact that even God's people can allow other things in their lives to rival their devotion to the Lord, to rival their devotion to the true God. We are capable, beloved, don't ever forget this. We are capable of subtly allowing people or projects or things to take the place that belongs to the Lord alone. When we allow that to happen, we are embracing idols. Don't think that the only way to practice idolatry is to go out into the woods, chop down a tree, carve out a wooden image, set it up in your house, and bow down to it. That's one way 
of practicing idolatry, but by no means the only way. Here's another way we can be guilty of practicing idolatry. Another way is when we form a view of God in our minds, not out of a piece of wood, when we form a view of God in our minds that doesn't line up with the way God has revealed himself in Scripture. Actually, I've lost count of the number of times I've seen Christians do this. They develop a view of God that fits with the way they want God to be, not the way He really is. With the way they would prefer He would be, not the way He really is. They develop a view of God with which, now catch this, with which they are more comfortable. Sometimes this is intentional. And sometimes it's unintentional. I've had more than one Christian tell me. The first time I heard this, it was rather shocking coming from a Christian. But now I've had more than one Christian tell me that he or she doesn't like certain things God has said in his word. They've actually had the audacity to say, God shouldn't have put that in the Bible. He shouldn't have said that. Beloved, that's bordering on, if, it, if not already in, idolatry. So you could paraphrase verse 21 this way. Keep yourself from developing a view of God that doesn't match the way he has revealed himself in Scripture. Stay faithful to the true God. It's not surprising that John would end this way because this is a pastor's heart. He wants to know that his children will stay faithful to the true God. So basically what John is saying here is this. Stay close to the Lord. Trust Him even when you don't understand what He's doing. Don't don't change Him in your mind. Don't change Him in your heart and your thoughts to fit your own thoughts or perspectives. That's what John is saying to his children and what he is saying to us. And when you think about it that way, it's a great way to end this powerful little letter. John, in essence, is saying, throughout this letter I have labored to tell you about the true God and who he is and what he has done for us and what he expects expects of us. So right here at the end, the very last thing I want to say to you is having seen a picture of the true God for five chapters now, stay true to the true God. Stay faithful to the true God. As we've seen throughout this passage There are several key truths that the Holy Spirit wants us to know. At the center of these truths is knowing Jesus Christ personally as your own Lord and Savior. Listen to me. If you don't know Him, if you don't have a genuine relationship with Him, if you aren't joined to Him, you will stand before Him someday and you will hear Him say, Depart from me, I never knew you. Isn't that interesting? I never knew you. Those are the most horrifying words you could ever hear, by far. Depart from me. I never knew you. Don't enter eternity. Don't enter eternity unprepared. Because those are the words you will hear. Let's bow together as we close. And please take a couple minutes here to reflect on what we've seen together this morning in God's Word. 
what we've seen not only this morning, but in our several month trek through this tremendous little letter of the New Testament. As you reflect upon what you've heard this morning, learned this morning, or learned over the last many months, however the Lord has spoken to your heart, respond. Don't just close your Bible. Say, oh, that's, that's neat. We finished First John. I wonder what's next. Instead, Lord, what do you want me to do about the truth of your word to which I have been exposed? How do you want me to respond? What, what changes do I need to make? And certainly if you're here today without a relationship with Jesus Christ, if you don't know him, then that is paramount. Right this moment in the quietness of your own heart, humble yourself before the Lord. Call out to him and say, Lord, I want to know you. I want to really know you. I don't want to stand before you and hear you say, depart from me, I never knew you. Lord Jesus, come into my life. Forgive me of my sin. Take me. Begin making me to be the man or the woman you want me to be. I want to know you personally, genuinely. Father, we've seen it so many times in Scripture, and yet we never cease to be amazed at the privilege we have to know you, to know you personally and call you Father, to know your Son, Jesus Christ, not merely know about him or know of him, but to know him. It seems so trite, so empty to say thank you, but we don't know how else to express it. Thank you from the bottom of our hearts that you grant us this privilege to know you and someday to know even as we are known. We now look through a glass darkly, dimly, 1 Corinthians 13 tells us, but the day will come when we will see face to face and then we will really know. We know today, we know now, but then we'll know without barrier. We'll know without any darkness. We'll know without any obscurity. We long for that day. And so in closing, we pray for anyone here gathered with us, anyone hearing these words, who does not know you, Father, and does not know your Son, Jesus Christ. May your Spirit draw that man, that woman, young person, whoever it is, to come to know Jesus Christ. And with that knowing, have full confidence and assurance of what you say regarding eternal life that is ours through Jesus Christ in whose name we pray. Amen.